0: This is A Voice, a podcast with Dr Gillian Kayes and Jeremy Fisher. This is A
1: Voice.
0: Welcome to the podcast and this is episode seven and this is the stories behind the stories part two. I'm Jeremy Fisher.
1: And I'm Dr Gillianne Kayes.
0: And the reason we've got a part two is in the uh, episode five, which was the first stories behind the stories, we, ha- we talked about the two fir- of our first books, Shall I start that again? That was, I'm just in a bizarre place at the moment. Okay, episode five, the stories behind the stories. The first time we did this was talking about the first two books that we wrote, which were singing in the actor and successful singing auditions. And now we're going to move on to the next... Set of books that we wrote, which is Singing Express. And not that many people know that we wrote this series.
1: Yeah, I, I think people wouldn't automatically associate us with uh, writers for um, children. Yeah. And indeed, that would be quite reasonable, as neither of us have had children, yes. and actually, I, I haven't had much experience teaching kids except at the very beginning of my career. Yeah, and I always preferred to work with from about eleven plus.
0: Yeah, I prefer twenty one plus. Um, why, so, why, why on earth were we asked to write Singing Express? <laughs> the Singing Express is a book, set of four books for kids age seven to up
1: to uh, No, it's a
0: bit earlier amount. than that. No, it's earlier than that. It's 5, it's 5 to 9. It is. Yes. 5 to 9. There you go.
1: In fact, you this might is even, so long ago. You might even get to early years for singing express one.
0: Yeah.
1: I certainly know of people who've used them at preschool and yeah. said the kids have really enjoyed them.
0: Okay, so what's the story behind the story?
1: The story behind the story is um once again my friend Anna Sanderson got me into deep water yeah hello Anna there I was happily having started a PhD and uh, Anna rang me up one day and she was working at ANC black at that time and had been working there for several years in the music department
0: yeah ANC black is a publisher
1: as a composer and very a very prestigious a, a writer yes and they had a very very good track record for music education books yes. So Anna rung me up and said, uh, oh, you know, Jilly, I don't know if you know, but we've, uh, we've had a very successful series called Music Express. And, you know, it's been rolled out in all of the schools and, uh, it's, you know, it's been doing very well for several years. So we were thinking about, wouldn't it be a good idea to do one called Singing Express? Because, you know, the voice is also an important instrument and it's an instrument that everybody can use. And currently, because this was, what, 2009? Um, no, it was before then. 2008, because I started it before we moved house. Yes. Because we, we moved did. to Wales in 2009. Yeah. Yeah. This is a long time ago, people. We're yes. digging into our memory banks yep. here. So um, let's say that we started work on it in 2008. I think that would be about right.
0: Yeah.
1: And... Um, At that time, there was a sort of a change in government policy in the UK, and there was a real movement towards uh, doing more singing in schools.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, also, by the way, the great thing about singing is that you can still learn all the music, things like rhythm and um, pitching and intonation Mm -hmm. and melody and harmony, but you don't have to have an instrument there.
1: Absolutely. The instrument is free. Yeah. So this was Anna's thinking, and it was very good thinking. Uh, So my first response was, but I don't know anything about children. Yeah. Don't worry, said Anna. I've got two of them. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I've been writing for children for decades. And we have all of that experience here at A&C Black. I
0: was going to say, that department was particularly good at writing kids stuff. Absolutely. So we had a great department behind us.
1: And I think Anna's thinking, quite rightly, was, well, the voice is the voice. So the way that the voice works, surely it's not that much different in children's voices. Uh, Anna's thinking was the voice is the voice. Now, I had a feeling that it might not be quite like that. And for the simple reason that my primary PhD supervisor was Professor Graham Welch, world-leading expert on child voice education. Yep. And uh, I sort of knew from having conversations with him that it might not be quite like that, but more of that later so um yeah, what we we started off by doing was we, we sort of brought some songs to the table. we talked about learning areas, sort of learning zones, and how could we make singing technique first of all accessible and fun for kids. Mm. And the other really big thing was that this was aimed at the generalist teacher for use in the classroom. Now, for those of you who aren't in the UK, a generalist teacher obviously teaches any subject. They are not a music specialist. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they are S-H-I-T scared of. Singing in front of people,
0: and um, wasn't X Factor and um, Pop Idol and all those all stuff, of those they things were, all were just starting. At the time. Yeah, they yep. were just Simon starting. Cowell
1: has quite a lot to be responsible for because actually um, his name was mentioned in some of the um, early uh, research sessions that they did with teachers to well, find out what it was that they thought they needed, and they said that they were afraid of being ridiculed yep. because the quality of their voice was very good, although, you know, they could sing, they could sing in tune. I
0: think it was one of the sort of rather unfortunate byproducts of programmes like that, because there are some good ones, Mm, mm. but um, that suddenly everybody became a very vocal armchair critic of anything singing.
1: Mm. So, I mean, this was much more about writing a few songs. We really wanted the scheme, uh, first of all, to be relevant to primary school education and all of those topics. And secondly, to um, all of the songs and the activities. I learned that you do activities in books like this. Children don't just do, um, you know, learning the music and learning the songs. There are other modes of learning. And that all of the songs and activities needed to have some kind of focus because we knew, even I knew, that... Uh, that you weren't going to get five-year-olds to do singing exercises.
0: That wasn't how it was going to go. It doesn't actually work either. And and
1: certainly as you get further up the scale, they wouldn't want to do that.
0: Um, I should just say at the moment that I actually wasn't involved with books one and two at all. So this is very much Gillian and Anna.
1: So that was the first problem, which is how do you deliver voice skills out of a more traditional uh, exercise context? And how do you uh, make them deliverable within a classroom context? And it, the deliverable within a classroom context was very much a Black's expertise, and obviously mine was was the voice. Mm. So uh, what we came up with, I'm just going to have a quick look here. We came up with well, these... Just
0: before you go mm. into that, I just want to say that, that in the books, in fact, in all four books you have, chants, games, stories, songs, whiteboard movie demos, backing tracks, vocal learning path.
1: So it's very much multimedia. Very
0: much multimedia, Yeah. Mm. So, and even then we were doing audio CD, whiteboard, DVD, it was the DVD ROM then. Uh, video Mm -hmm. DVDs. So we had movies made. We had um, uh, both uh, example tracks with the singer and backing tracks without the singer.
1: Yeah. So the idea was, and I think it was a great concept, that the generalist music teacher who was scared of singing could put the DVD ROM on and put the whiteboard presentation on and go. He, she would never need to sing in front of the children or could sing with the children Yep. Uh, so they were not having to teach by call and response, which, of course, is the normal way that we do this. Yes. So going back to sort of my area, which was the five key vocal learning areas, that's what we came up with. And we came up with body balance. And a really key thing for us was we weren't going to really talk about posture because it's not about fixing. Uh, the second area was breath. And understanding how um, breath is used in the body and all sorts of games and things that can be done with that. Pitching. And what we did with pitching, and this came about after the meeting uh, with Professor Welch, of which more later. Um, <laughs> this is
0: just a tease. Yeah,
1: another tease. Uh, we separated between pitch exploration, so that, you know, making noises and sounds and getting a, a sense of where pitch lives in space or in our bodies. Uh, and pitch matching which of course is the um the more user friendly way of talking about singing in tune
0: pitch matching i think is really interesting because um anytime that you are with anybody else at all so if you you might be singing uh, two of you might be singing a cappella but in harmony together mm. or even singing the same melody together mm. the same the same thing or anytime you're with an instrument mm. you are it, basically, you have to be in tune mm. with who, whatever is going on around you. And
1: actually, this was one of the big things as well that came up with the you know the research into teachers, uh, because this questionnaire was sent out. This this is um, the best way to uh, find out what your audience need with a, a huge collaborative project like this. Uh, that, uh, again, they were worried about, well, what if, what if I can't pitch? You know the wonderful word pitchy that came out of these reality yes. TV singing programs? Oh, it's a bit pitchy. Yeah. Um, so pitch matching is different from pitch exploration. Then we talked about sound shapers, which, you know, in more traditional approach, we we would uh, talk about in terms of resonance, but how we how we use the mouth, what's happening with the tongue, maybe the jaw, um, what's happening with our lips and how we shape the sound that way. And uh, I, I learned that in primary school, they learn phonics. And so that was a great way for us to link with the phonics learning that kids are doing at that point in time um, for write, uh, written language and verbal language. Yep. And then finally, we went for expression because we thought this was important expression. Songs tell stories or they create moods. And that would also allow for things like, you know, maybe manner of articulation and exploring tonal colours, you know, raw noises, pretty noises, all sorts of things.
0: So that's five mm. five sections, mm. and, and the five key vocal learning areas were put into that was always behind all of the writing, Absolutely. all the way through all four books. So you've got body balance, breath, pitch, uh, sound shapers, and expression.
1: Yeah. Now I, I do want to talk about the the first meeting with Professor Graham Welch, <laughs> yeah. and then what I'd like to talk about is that we had also um, an introduction and, and a help area, which mm. I, I have to say I'm really proud of. Mm. So we said, yes, you know, um, Graham Welch, could we come and have a meeting? And it was myself and Anna and sort of, the, you know, the the whole, the creative editor. And we'd got a sort of mock-up whiteboard presentation of a song, uh, which um, I think was called Hum, Hum, Hum. And we were quite pleased with this song. You know, we looked at it. We thought this was a a good uh, vocal learning song. So Professor Welch sat there and watched the whole thing. It was quite quiet. And he said, hmm, have you noticed that the range of this song is a twelfth?
0: That's an octave and a half.
1: looked at each other, bit of an eye roll. And uh, he said, if you want to be inclusive of all children in the classroom at their stages of pitch matching you must always include songs that are only a sixth in Mm -hmm. pitch span.
0: So like C to A.
1: Yeah, at every level. So we kind of went into shock and we realised that all of the songs we got together, we thought, oh, these are really nice music. You know, we really like this song. This is a great song. This is a good song. Um, From a musical point of view, oh, that's very interesting. Nope. Nope that is not going to work when you're writing for kids
0: i think i i want to pick this apart because i think mm. so many times and even after the <clears throat> excuse me even after the books were published we used to watch go and watch people do um choral sort of training presentations for kids and mm. their opening piece would be an octave and a half And I think this is really interesting because people who tend to do, and I'm I'm doing a big generalisation here, Mm. people who tend to do choral training tend to be musicians. Mm -hmm. And they are really attracted to big ranges, complex harmonies, complex melodies, complex rhythms, because they're interesting, interesting and exciting. And when you're working with kids who are still in the stages of pitch change, which we're going to talk about in a minute, Um, sometimes they have three notes, sometimes they have six notes, sometimes Mm -hmm. they have seven notes, you know, they don't have an octave and a half Mm. easily accessible, Mm. or even sometimes at all. So one of the things was, um, it was one of the reasons I think that you included chanting, you included limited range things, Mm -hmm. you know, three notes, four notes, five notes, Mm -hmm. and 90% of all four books are only go over a sixth or Mm. possibly a seventh. I know that in book three, there was one song that we thought was so good and it was something like a tenth Mm -hmm. that we included it anyway, but it was the exception rather than the rule.
1: And we put a note about that. I mean, this was a real shock because I have to say, you know, we we had a nice batch of songs. Yeah. several inches deep and we had to throw most of those out and we had to go right back to the drawing board. Right?
0: I want to bring up the composers as well because so much of the music that was involved in this series was either arranged for us or composed for us especially mm. and when we told the composers I mean we had a real team of them and we said you can only write over a range of a seventh. Mm. Um, I think they went into shock as well because it was so unusual at that time. that was such an unusual brief for a composer to write a kid's song that only covered six or seven notes.
1: yes, yes, and I think it was a real eye opener to find out about you know the the research that um Professor Welch was engaged in at that time actually, and you know the the first findings came out in about two thousand and nine. And they were looking into the national singing programme. And, you know, what they found was what are the kids aged seven to eight, the G below middle C to the B just um, just above middle C, that that's considered comfortable singing range. And it's only when you get to ages 10 and 11 that you could be going down to the F below and then staying comfortably up to that C above middle C. Mm-hmm. This is comfortable singing range as opposed to uh, extended so, that you needed to have the, the main bank of your songs within that comfortable singing range mm. so that it was, it was viable for the kids to do them. And as we progressed with the series, what we could say uh, to those who were interested in developing singers' range was, we'll try the song out in different keys. Yes. And uh, challenge the kids to sing higher and lower.
0: I mean, we've we've been um, we've been teasing them with the whole uh, four stages of pitch matching thing, and I think we should go there now.
1: I don't see why we shouldn't. Have you got it? Have you got um, it off, Pat? It? Or no. To, uh, uh, no. No. I think you just. I think it is here.
0: Yes. This was such an... it isn't, is it? Mm. How interesting. Okay, this was such an eye-opener. We actually still use this on our training courses. We used it last week on the online singing teacher training course that we do, which is um, five days completely online. Um, Okay, so stage number one. And by the way, kids go through this. Some just zoom through them really, really fast. Some go through them very slowly. Some get stuck. Thank you. I found it. Some Mm. get stuck. And in fact, some adults are still stuck in this set of four. Sequence. Sequ- in the yeah. sequence. Um, and I think even that is just interesting to know. Mm. So I have, uh, this is Singing Express 1. Mm. Um, I have that here.
1: And there's a help area at the back of it.
0: Yes. So in the help area, um, we have the four stages of development adapted from um, Professor Welch uh, and his 1998 research. Mm. And this is phase one, words rather than melody. So the singing is likely to be chant-like with a very restricted pitch range and the falling melodic pattern da-da happens more often.
1: You know how the kids they love to pick up all those words and that they'll come out with them and they're you know they're mouthing them because they're at that stage where they've they've begun to get control of language and they yeah. love words.
0: And in fact I did um, and we will put the link up I did a demonstration of the four stages of pitch matching which is now on our YouTube the YouTube channel youtube.com slash vocal process uh, four stages of pitch matching. I basically sang a song demonstrating the four different things. You did. It was rather things, impressive, actually. Great. I think
1: you got a round of applause, if I remember right. Huge
0: rightly. fun to do that, wasn't
1: it? So that's stage so, one.
0: Uh, phase one is is very chant-like. Uh, rhythm is normally spot on. Words mm-hmm. are normally spot on. Pitch nowhere near. Phase two, developing awareness and conscious control of pitch, able to follow larger melodic contours of a song. Now, this is the interesting bit. There's a sense of musical key, but it's phrase based. So you are likely to get approximately the right shape in a phrase. But then when the next phrase starts, we're in a completely different key.
1: And people, you will recognise this with some of your um, adult beginner singers.
0: Yeah. I recommend you go because I do a beautiful demonstration on the YouTube channel. Phase three, increased accuracy of melodic shape and intervals, but may change key while control of vocal range is still in development. So you've moved on a bit further. Yeah. You know, we're, we're now able to recognise the, the the melody clearly, but still there's not a, the ability to maintain a key through several phrases.
1: Yeah, and also I think one of the, the important things about this is if you think about ages seven to eight, the comfortable range was... G below and C, C, C up to, to the, the B, B above, above. Most of that is what we would think of as being chest voice range yeah. or speak singing voice range. Yeah. And if a child doesn't listen to music where they hear people going in, into their upper range, into their head voice, or you know the child has has never used that, mm-hmm. then if a song starts to stray into that area, mm-hmm. then what they'll do is they'll drop down yes. so they can still manage the melodic pattern. We, all hear, we hear this when we listen to people singing in church, don't yes. we?
0: Yes. Or in the restaurant. Yes. Yes. And then uh, phase four is no significant melodic or pitch errors when singing relatively simple songs of own culture. And we really need to unpick that mm. bit at the end. Mm. Because relatively simple songs, so people can get them correct... Of their own culture. So there is something about the tonality or the melody Mm. or the history that is in their brain, in their psyche already, and they can recognise those notes and reproduce them correctly.
1: And I would guess it's also the listening culture at home, whatever their parents listen to, what the kids watch on television, what kind of music is uh, being used on television, um, even the the music that accompanies adverts. Yes. So all of that, in a way, that's more kind of socio-cultural, but that's definitely going to impact.
0: And people who run community choirs are going to recognise those stages straight away.
1: Uh, And I do want to say something here, you know, um, the fact that I haven't worked that much with kids except in my early career, I still hear people talking about, oh, there's a few droners in my choir or there's a few droners in my class. What shall I do? There aren't droners. All you have there is people at stage one pitch matching.
0: Yes. So they will almost certainly be able to do the rhythm and the words. Yeah. So you may be able to hear we have, I think we're just about to be attacked by a plane. A little bit of humming. (laughs) There's a flyover going on.
1: So that was a very very fruitful meeting with Professor Welch.
0: That was a bit of a face. Uh, we
1: definitely knew more by the end of it. Uh, it was incredibly useful, and he was very kind enough to write us a, a foreword as well. And um, I think it really contributed to the value of this particular series.
0: I think one of the reasons also that um, we actually quite enjoyed working on this is the idea that we we have. A- massive catalogue of vocal techniques. We have a huge catalogue of of physiological understanding. Mm. Um, And it's for this level, we couldn't essentially, we we knew who the audience was and we couldn't do lots and lots of detail. What we had to do was the practical application of it rather than the theoretical or the um, physiological or anything like that because the language wouldn't have worked Mm. for this audience. And I think that's one of the things about finding your voice as a writer Mm -hmm. um, It is interesting that our first one, two, three, four, five, six, seven books were commissions. And therefore, we had a specific audience given to us to write for. And so part of the skill of being a writer of vocal technique books is that you need to know who you're aiming at. In fact, it was it's eight because it's the Oxford Town Book of Singing as well, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Because yeah, if at, got the the, energy
1: left. <laughs> at the same
0: time as mm. writing this set of um, books for children. And their teachers, we were also writing two chapters for the Oxford Handbook of Singing, which is basically academic level, mm, uh, mm. where everything had to be demonstrated, everything had to be um, uh, validated, validated, validated. And
1: peer-reviewed.
0: And peer-reviewed. Yeah. So we were writing at two entirely different levels, and then Gillian was doing a PhD mm. as well at the same time.
1: Mm.
0: And I was in a darkened room. <laughs> Um, waiting for her to come out
1: there's a few things if there's been a little bit of rustling um in the background it's because i've been opening up the book and looking for one or two things i wanted to share with you um one of the things that we wanted to make absolutely clear to people was the idea that first of all every child has the potential to sing yeah and we felt that instead of being geared towards you must learn the song and get the song right, the job was to develop the singer. So we, we came up with this phrase, the singer first, then the song.
0: Yeah, which, which in fact we still do. It was pretty
1: much how we think of it anyway. Still now. So that's the focus is developing the singer and, and their response to music. Um, music reading, not a requirement. Really, really important to understand that. And again... Music literacy musicality does not depend on music musical literacy
0: I think that was fairly unusual when this mm-hmm. when this was mm. written because um, often singing books just automatically assume that you read music and we didn't want to do that mm. and partly because we've been working with actors for so long for 20 30 years and mm. um, Many of whom at the time, certainly, and still still now, don't read music or read it very, very badly. Mm. And to me, to be an actor and get up on stage, it's not important to know whether that's a quaver or a crotchet.
1: Yeah. So that, that kind of realisation of what melody is and pattern, um, duration, which is rhythm, and pulse, and dynamic and timbre, which, are, by the way, are all kind of goals in music education, mm. All of those really, those were kind of outcomes of the songs and the learning activities that they did rather than being spelled out mm-hmm. um, in the in the, the text of the work, if you like. Yeah. And I think that's important. And we also talked about how a child voice differs from an adult's voice, mm. that... It's not just a case that it's smaller, but it's the, the smallness has um, different levels of importance. The lungs are smaller, so you know you're not going to develop breath control by using adult size phrases. Uh, you can expect a different timbre because the larynx is, uh, is smaller. Uh, the texture of the vocal folds, different, etc. All of those things that anybody who's interested in the lifespan of the voice is aware of.
0: Um, I just want to sort of move on because I, this this project took three or four years altogether mm. to put together. Um, I books one and two were published, mm. and then we were contracted to do books three and four, mm-hmm. uh, and I was brought in um, to expand the musical styles. Really,
1: yeah, I felt that we were getting to a stage where. Uh, I'd given the advice needed on uh, the, the vocal learning targets, mm. but that when it came to expanding the musical scope, that mm. we really needed someone else. And I felt Jeremy was the right person for oh, that.
0: I had such fun. I've never had a team of composers to play with before. Um, <laughs> that was so much fun. So mm. we, would, we would have a song and that song might exist or it might be written for us. Um, so... And uh, particularly then we had another team of arrangers. It wasn't always the composer who arranged the songs for the books. So um, the song would arrive um, and we'd go, yes, love the song, love the lyrics. That's going to work really well. Great range. Mm. And then I'd send it off to the arranger. And uh, to, to start with, it was like, well, you know, we need something. And it would be a, quite a detailed list of things. Mm. And by the end of it, uh, there was one arranger in particular. And I would go, "Can we have something that's sort of sparkly Disney? And that would be it. That would be the only thing the only instruction I'd give and what came back was fantastic.
1: It was gorgeous he that. Absolutely one, wasn't it? got yes. what the brief was. Yes, I'd forgotten that you did all that. You were the one that did all these long phone calls yes. and then they'd they'd sort of submit, you know, sample um arrangements and then they come back and <sighs> You know, sometimes a bit of tact is required.
0: And sometimes it wasn't. Um, and
1: some of them were highly experienced, yes, weren't they? Yeah, there was yeah. one,
0: and unfortunately, we don't because we've sold out a book for, and I can't remember what the song was called, but it was a it was a Mary Had a Little Lamb song that then disintegrated into something much heavier. And I, I was it, well,
1: it was pretty much metal. Wasn't I was it, so thrilled
0: <laughs> because I got a sort of <laughs> heavy rock accompaniment in including a real guitar slash mm. and there were emails going backwards and forwards about where this guitar interruption was going to come to get us from the lovely nursery rhyme into the rock and um and I kept going no 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 it needs to arrive on the third quaver of bar 17 now that's not arriving there that's starting on the third bar no I'm, it needs to start on and it was got immensely technical about where this single slide guitar slide needed to come but we got it right in the end and I love that because I snuck in some some heavy rock, yeah, just into the book because we had beautiful Disney stuff, we had jazz, we had um, folk, we had lots of different styles we of world, had world, world music, music, obviously to beautiful, reflect
1: our multicultural society. Absolutely, here in the yeah, UK.
0: beautiful Indian type uh, mm. song with accompaniment. Mm-hmm. Really loved that song. So there's so many different styles in there. I actually forgot to count them. Uh, I was going to. But um, that was huge fun mm. because it was what style is going to fit this lyric? What style is going to fit this song? And when the arrangement came in, did it work? Mm. Was it Did it actually reflect exactly what was going on in the music?
1: I think the first thing, you know, you should know if you're interested in doing a, a big project like this is you have to be prepared to collaborate.
0: Yes.
1: I mean, this was a massive collaborative project. Uh, when we started off, it was... Uh, mostly me and Anna, and the um, the creative editor, Sheena. And then occasional meetings with the, the filming team who were doing the we whole haven't mentioned whiteboard them thing. Yet. We love. haven't even mentioned Walk Tall Media. Walk Tall Media. What and Jackie
0: loved working with them. I mean, yeah. I love I love video media anyway. Mm. I tend to think televisually. So mm. um, the moment you give me a song or a, or a, a line, I will tend to to imagine it on television. So I loved working with the the video people because we were videoing quite a lot of the songs. Yes, and there was so much intricate detail. To play with.
1: I mean, for me at the beginning, that was because I'd never done any work of that type at all. So, you know, I'd go to these big planning meetings and sit there and occasionally throw in a word. Um, but as we got further on, we realized that we actually needed to video uh, some guide mm. tracks mm. Uh, as well as having the, the sort of the whiteboard yep. presentation, yep. And the visual side. So we had to get actors in, and I want to
0: mention—I want yeah. to mention the list of people that we got because there were some yeah. great people who did all our singing. So we have. Um, where's the? I had a list somewhere. Mm. Where have they gone? Mm.
1: Um, well, I'm just looking here. Here we go. Mm.
0: Right, vocalists and presenters. Um, Rosemary Amuani. Rosemary was great. She was on Balamori. Uh, and she came in and sang some of the songs for us, and in fact, um, videoed my song. I wrote lyrics to a song, mm. uh, which is great, and we still use that. Kim Chandler, the excellent Kim Chandler, who still mm. holds the record for the most number of songs and the most number of correct the the least number of correct notes. First takes. No, first takes. She managed yeah. to record 17 songs in one day, which is extraordinary.
1: Yes, Kim Chandler, you are the first take queen. Absolutely.
0: Um, Me, I actually appear on some of the songs. Uh, Mm. I sang some of the lines. Mm. Nigel Pilkington, Bridgetta Roy, who's an old friend of ours. Kaz Simmons, Anthony Strong, Matthew White, now theatre director. Yes. Um, So there were loads of people, and um, there was somebody else as well.
1: Yes, Cleveland Cleveland. Watkins. Cleveland, yes, very well known jazz singer. Yes. And one of the things
0: about the singers was that we had specific rules for Mm. them, which was no vibrato.
1: No wobble.
0: No vibrato. Now, the reason that we wanted no vibrato was because we wanted the adult voices to sound as close to the kids' voices as possible. Mm. So we said no vibrato and a lighter sound. It was really interesting to find out how many singers automatically put vibrato in and to actually ask them to take it out mm. all the way through a song was yeah. quite something.
1: And occasionally we would have to stop and say, listen, you need to make that lighter, slightly brighter. Can you back off? Don't give us, um, you know, such a high subglottal pressure. Yep. Children's voices are smaller. Yeah. And uh, that was that was such an interesting challenge really enjoyed that.
0: And props to Stephen Chadwick as well, who did all the recording for us and wrote several of yep. the songs. Yeah, so hours
1: in the recording studio, hours in planning meetings, yep. um, occasional disagreements between the creative teams. <laughs> I can remember one time when Jeremy and I pretty much had a standoff. Yeah. And uh, that was interesting. And, and the, the creative team were kind of in the <laughs> studio looking to, what are they going to do, these two? But we got there in the end. Yep. Um, we're
0: yeah. We're lovely to work with. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the time. Do you
1: know, I think if we'd been a married couple, we wouldn't have had the standoff. Uh,
0: I think,
1: oh, there, so there's one more thing yeah, I we want were. to... we were.
0: We were married at the time. Yes, we were yes. married at the time. Yeah. yeah. So that, all gorgeous.
1: Um. I just wanted to say one more thing, which was bear in mind that we're working with a generalist teacher here. Yeah. So what we did at every stage was that we uh, made it absolutely clear what the learning area was for a particular song. Yeah. And then we would have teaching tips. So for instance, I've got one here with a song in book three called Circle Song. And the teaching tips are Fitting the words and melody together is an important singing skill. Help the children by practising the second verse together slowly as a chant before singing it to the backing track. Mm. So little things like that where we thought, well, where are they going to trip up here? And sometimes in the teaching tips, it would be, how do you move on? So we always had when and where, Where, um, when can you use this? Uh, maybe in relation to maths and when you're learning about circles, the song's called Circle Song. So there's a cross-curricular link there. Um, maybe as a stimulus for creating a dance in a, a sort of a physical session.
0: So there were always new ideas that it wasn't just about singing the song. It was also about context Very much so. and variation. And that's
1: something that's incredibly important for schools, that sense of cross-curricular learning. Mm. And then guidelines for how to get started, how you're going to start teaching them. And then what are you going to do to move it on? You know, is there a higher level that you could do the song at? Could you explore it further? Mm. So we've got that at every single stage. I must say I'm very proud about that.
0: I just want to, before we move mm-hmm. on to on to the next book that we wrote, um, I want to talk about movability, which was um the, the one song that I wrote the the lyrics for. And I'd just done some Qigong Uh something of course that had qigong in it and there is a sequence of qigong movements and I went, I love this. This is really great because I feel the energy flowing when I'm doing it.
1: Oh anyone who has worked with the late Mary Beth Dane yes. will be familiar with these moves. I think there's eight different Qigong moves and they are in fact a very nice physical integration warm-up.
0: So a song arrived um, on my desk, uh, which was, I've even forgotten what it was called now. I think it was called Singability or something like that. And I just went, ooh, that's, this is interesting. If we took the moves and the words from my sequence and we put them onto that song, that would actually work really well. Uh, so it became the song moveability and it was filmed for um the video and in fact we've we've used it ever since mm. and we use it as a warm up we've actually used it as a warm up on our courses mm. and um i don't know whether it's anywhere online i'll have a look um but i what we found is that it it was written for 9 year olds but um, we've had adults doing it. We've had drama students doing it in yeah. in Apparently, in the First year
1: undergraduates first love, year it as a war. love it. First year undergrads love it.
0: And it's all all the moves are set. The melody is five note pentatonic, mm. so there are only five notes in it. Um, and the it's a very simple melody. It's a very simple rhythm. But the fun is in all the movements, and mm. you do them one by one. And it, because they are Qigong exercises, you can feel the energy moving. It's mm. a real energy warmer-upper. Mm. So love that song. i um, very pleased that that's out there. Yeah,
1: if, if we f- well, find a performance of it on YouTube, yep. maybe we'll, we'll post the link to it. And if you want
0: to do a performance and let us know. We would love to yeah. see it.
1: It's it's a terrific song. Yeah, yeah. Was, we were very proud of that.
0: So, um, just we, we to spend a few minutes moving on because at the same time as, as writing this, uh, we were also invited to write a chapter for the Oxford Handbook of Singing on the pedagogy of sung genres.
1: Oh, and by the way, uh, just because I needed more to do, I was in uh, the process of doing my PhD right at in, that time, right
0: in the middle of it. Yes, yes. because we don't get we don't like being bored um so we were so invited, we got
1: books one and two done yeah then we moved house yes
0: then and, we did, we which wrote, involved
1: moving our business from London to um the Welsh borders which more, is where we live the, now. A more global place
0: um then we did three and four mm-hmm um, and three or four, just massive projects. And uh, I think at the same time... At the same time... We were writing the chapter for the Oxford Handbook of Singing, and that yeah. was with Lisa Poppe in America.
1: Yes, and now the person responsible for this was my supervisor. <laughs> yes. Yes, uh, we, because he knew I was very interested in genre. That that was one of the main topics of my PhD, the main foci. And um, so... so He was one of the editors for uh, the Oxford Handbook of Singing. Can you hold the tome up, Um, please, Jeremy? For the people
0: on YouTube, you'll hear me grunting because this is an 1,100-page book. Yeah. Uh, It is actually, if you're looking on YouTube, it's the one that's directly behind us in the centre... Um, it's an amazing book. It has a who's who of um, music and ed- vocal yeah. educators. It, it, in, it's uh, a
1: fantastic resource, I have to amazing. say, an absolute labour of love. Yeah. Uh, three editors, Professor Graham Welch, yes. uh David Howard, Hi, David. And, and John Nix. Yes. So Graham decided that I would be a very good person and that to write together with Jeremy to write a chapter on pedagogy of different song genres. Mm. So, I mean, of course, we were thrilled because... This is what we do. At that Also, that point in time, you know, 2010, there wasn't really that much out there about the pedagogy of non-classical genres.
0: Not in the academic world.
1: Yeah. Uh And we felt quite honoured that we'd been asked to do that, mm. uh, together with Lisa Poppe yep. um, from the US. Yeah. As we felt that it was an affirmation, really, um, that... We were the right people to talk about, yes. if you like, comparative pedagogy between the genres. So there's
0: there's quite a lot in this yeah. chapter. It's, it's quite dense. And of course, because we're writing for what is essentially an academic book.
1: Well, anything we wrote had to be yes. evidence-based. We had to yeah, prove we it. We couldn't just do, oh, this is because we do it, <laughs> uh, or because we yes. like it, or because this is our opinion. Yes. And you need to bear in mind that when you write... Uh, a chapter for an academic uh, edited book, you will be peer-reviewed, likely by some colleagues that you greatly esteem. Yes. Uh, And that's a process in itself, being prepared to take that on the chin.
0: Um, And it was interesting because where we ended up going in terms of genres discussed, and we have Mm. a table, fortunately, uh, Western Lyric, which is basically classical, Western classical, um, opera, art, song, and early music, Mm. And then CCM, or Contemporary Commercial Music. Musical theatre. Now, that's an interesting one for us because we sort of don't... We think musical theatre is a genre all of its own, uh, section all of its fortunately,
1: own. Fortunately, all three of us were agreed
0: on yep. that. Mm. Um, but in this, in this table, we put it under CCM. Uh, jazz, commercial music, pop, rock, R&B, including soul, country. Um, so, yeah, there was... That was quite an enormous spread of, of stuff. And, in fact, in, for the research that I did with um, All Music Database, mm-hmm. there are something like 700 different genres just mm-hmm. in contemporary commercial music.
1: Actually, it was very good that we had Lisa as a co-author on this because she was kind of very on the money about all of these different areas. Yeah. She's taught a lot of the subgenres of contemporary co- commercial music. Yeah. Um, and she also had a very good idea about the sort of the, the the cultural aspect, the
0: performance culture. There was an interesting point, wasn't there, where we were asked to cover other stuff as ah, well. Ah, yes.
1: Well, okay. So we submitted.
0: <laughs> sorry, this is. I'm, I'm sorry, but this is a little ridiculous.
1: But no, no, but this is what happens. So we submitted our first draft, <laughs> yeah. and that was great. And they had a look at it. We worked and they said, very yeah. hard on that draft. Yeah. You know, we like it, and of course, we were breathing a sigh of relief. That's great. And they came back to us and they said, well, um, we think that we need to include non-Western music. You know, for instance, what about Indian and African and Chinese?
0: And you know um, the Home Alone look, where you're going hands on your face with your mouth open. (laughs) We were going, hang on, we're already covering 700 different genres and now you're asking us to cover entire country outputs. So we said,
1: no. (laughs) No. It wouldn't <laughs> we not said, for us. We don't
0: know anything about that.
1: I mean, it, you know what? What the thinking, quite rightly, was: if if we're talking about music culture, why are we only talking about Western music yep. cultures? Yeah. And that was uh, absolutely fair appropriate. But the amount of research and reading that would have been required to talk about a topic of which none of us knew anything. Nope it just was not viable. So yeah, we, we said, said no. please, can you find someone else to do that? <laughs> and that is exactly what happened. The
0: computer says no.
1: So that's something that you can you can check out. We might even redo some of the chapter headings <laughs> of this. Yeah. So uh, yes, we, we got out of that one nicely.
0: But it was interesting because we're still talking about the same things. We're still talking about resonation, respiration, phonation, articulation. We're talking mm, about the same stuff, mm. but in different genres. They have all sorts of different balances. And part of that comes from um, not just the history of the music, but the venue, the type of venue that they're mm, played in, mm. whether it's mic'd or not, and also the, what the audience expectations are. The performance
1: are. expectations, yep. yeah. We also talked, didn't we, about... Can you just sort of flip back? Yes. Because like, I quite like the heading before, that the heading with the three, with the... Yeah. A oh, um, genre,
0: idiom, voice. Yes,
1: we came up with idiom. I mean, idiom is something that musicologists write about. And something that um, one of the things that Lisa Poppe brought to the table uh, was her own kind of list of stylisms mm. where she sort of observed uh, different um, almost vocal effects and different stylisms that are used mm. in different subgenres. And we decided that we were going to call those idioms mm-hmm. so that we talk about general use of voice genre expectations and then what some of the stylisms might be. and well you can just imagine the huge amount of information that you're sifting through mm. and wanting to wanting to put in some kind of cohesive form so that people could read it and understand why people uh, why singers might use their voices differently what the reason would be why mm. they would sing their voices differently what trends there are mm. and from that what kind of teaching approaches might be used. So there was a massive amount to get through. And without some kind of framework, that would
0: have been impossible. Well, I think it was working the framework out took so much time because it was such an enormous topic to deal with. Yeah, um, We just had to take a stance, um, literally, to be able to start something.
1: And I think that that's something that I'm probably quite good at. I mean, I was mm. in the middle of doing a PhD, so I was mm. having to think sort of categories and structural thought. And sometimes it can box you in, and you have to be careful about that.
0: Well, you essentially became lead writer on this. You were doing most of the writing of it. And uh, Lisa and I were doing lots and lots of discussion and and, um, uh, and input on it, but also I think op- I was being headmistress is really what he said no, the most not. polite no. possible no, I'm way. No, No, of the of the three of us, you were also the person who had the most experience with references. I, well,
1: I was looking at the at the um, academic targets, if you like. That so was what I felt.
0: Anything I that could we bring. put, yeah, anything we put in mm-hmm. the chapter had to have. Uh, an academic reference of some kind. Mm. So, um, and that's really interesting because there are lots of things that we could have put in, particularly... I mean, if it was
1: anecdotal, we had to say anecdotal. anecdotal. And, and Jeremy, I want you, before the end of this session, I want you to talk about...
0: The transcriptions.
1: And the survey.
0: Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, but the, there's a there's a table, table 35.3 on page 720. You can buy the interested. chapter
1: separately, folks. We will put links
0: you for can. you. Um where we talk about vocal effects and what the descriptions are. And obviously we're talking about tone onsets. So Mm. you've got um, the glottal the the aspirate or breath onset and the glide onset or the simultaneous or the singer's or onset the smooth. or smooth onset yeah. or whatever you want to call it but then we got actually quite interesting quite fast mm. so we've got note arrivals you've got fry the yodel down the yodel up the squeeze the growl the pitch rise the pitch fall the short improvisation and then a whole list of combinations mm. that you could do and I'm still using some of these in mm. um, in what we teach. And we had
1: a lot of fun discussing those yeah. between the three of us, didn't we? Yes. Yeah,
0: I think mm. I introduced one to um, to uh, Lisa, Lisa that that she hadn't heard before. She went, "No, surely that doesn't exist." And I went, "Oh, yes, it does. Here's an example of it." And that was the squeeze glottal, so which I have heard quite a lot since. Yeah, then. Yeah,
1: you you can do that.
0: So um, that was fun. Uh, okay, so you want to talk about the transcript. Yeah, let's do
1: that first because yeah. you know uh, we got to the stage where we thought. They need to see something on paper. Now, as it happened, Jeremy was doing helping me with some transcriptions for my PhD. Or maybe no, it was the other no, way around. No,
0: the PhD came later because yeah. you, you weren't at that stage yet.
1: I know. We went to Australia. It was our first uh, teaching trip to Australia for ANAT and NEWSAT as the... Um, master, teachers master teachers for that particular for 2011, year, 2011, yeah. yeah. And we said, we, we've got to make this tangible for people. Mm. So we found two recordings of Amazing Grace. Now these
0: specifically, they were acapella recordings because yeah. I didn't want to have to deal with instrumentals. So we had Jesse Norman singing Amazing Grace, and that was on a French television programme about Martin Luther King. Um, and she just sat in the chair, ha- having been interviewed, and sang "Amazing Grace." Mm. And then there is a really good um, video of Leanne Rimes singing "Amazing Grace," and she's standing in a church, and mm. it is completely a cappella. Mm. So again, really useful to do. And we have such different performances. Mm. So one is very classical based. There is an an element of. Um, gospel about it. Jesse Norman slumming it. Mostly we're talking classical. And then you have Leanne Rhymes, which is um, pop country, mm. essentially. So there's there's two different flavours in there. Mm. And I transcribed them. So, um, and I think we might be able to put this up somewhere. It's probably, I can put it up on the the, well, um
1: I don't see why you shouldn't. You the don't vocal see why you website. shouldn't put the visuals up. Yeah,
0: yeah, because it is so amazing. It's so interesting just to see the notes that they were singing, the way that they moved between them. The one thing we didn't do was phonetic transcription, which would have driven me nuts. So if anybody wants to do a phonetic transcription of either of these recordings, please do. Any you do phonetic
1: know. gigs, yes, please, please do. And I think what's nice about this is that it reminds us that a piece of music on the page is only a guide, oh, and sorry. that even a classical singer is lifting that music off the page. And you would be amazed—you
0: will be—how
1: many pitch glides there are, pitch even glides, in Jessie Norman. Extra Normans.
0: notes, yeah, and also which notes you pitch consonants on. I marked those mm. as well. Mm. Um, and uh, when we got to Leon Rhymes, I was marking. Uh, yodel flips. I was marking creak onsets oh, and offsets. Uh, fry onsets. Um, fry onsets. onsets. I was marking slides and glides. I was marking notes that were in tune, notes that were out of tune. There's one particular thing which is an effect, which is to sing a note slightly flat mm. uh, to make it sound like it's harder work than it actually is.
1: And also all the little ornaments that she puts in. Yes. <laughs> Masses I, of little, oh, little riffs. I
0: ended up using a little app at the time called The Amazing Slow Downer, mm. just so that I could slow everything down to walk. Walking pace, mm. um, but keep the pitch the same, so I could work out what some of the um, some of the the tiny little demi hemi demi, demi semi quavers are that she was putting in.
1: So, if you haven't seen this chapter, uh, have a look. Yes. once we've got this up on the website. I think you'll find it really enlightening.
0: Yes. So that was. Um, it, I'm not going to say that was fun to write because it was actually very intense and hard work. But um, we're very proud of it. Yeah. And we still use um, things from that book. Yes. Um, I want to talk about this whole business of when you have knowledge, Mm. how you then apply it, because knowledge is is basically utterly useless unless it's applied. Mm. So it's taking information that we have. That sounds um, like
1: conversations we had when I was doing my PhD.
0: Yeah. Um, (laughs) It's it's when you take what you know and you work it out to something or you work it to an audience or you work it to a singer.
1: Yeah. So you have that knowledge. And, you know, I was already doing a PhD uh, when we started Singing Express. So how was I going to really (laughs) bring that knowledge to a level that was going to be communicable to the generalist singing teacher and the primary school. I just remember singer. what
0: ended up being my favourite phrase for a couple of years, which is no, that's PhD speak.
1: Yeah, I got it for <laughs> you learned that from Anna. She said <laughs> I think all right, thank you Gilly for a PhD moment now.
0: Yes. Now can we make it practical?
1: Yeah, yeah. So um
0: And in fact um we're going to do a podcast in the future where we talk about how we take the A and P the anatomy and physiology language and mm-hmm. information and knowledge that we already have mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how we work it for different audiences because ultimately that's the goal.
1: That is the goal. That's very important, actually.
0: So even writing this stuff, you know, finding our voice was... And, oh, by the way, can we just talk collaborative writing? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Can we talk collaborative writing, Julianne? Can you be nice? (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that Gillianne does, we have very different styles of writing because I will sit and I'll write something and I'll be really, really focused on it. And then I'll come out of the room and I go, hey, you know, can I share this? With you when we talk about it. And Gillianne is of the opinion that really she doesn't want to share anything at all with me until it's perfect.
1: I have a little nugget.
0: So three months later, but I'm going... I have going, to
1: grow my little seed. Yes.
0: Yeah. Three months later, I'm going, um, would you like to tell me what you're doing? Yeah. <laughs> It was, it's been a um, a little thing of gentle argument since two, since 1999, in fact. I think we got it right
1: when we wrote This is a Voice. I think we did yes. much better with it. Yes, 2016.
0: That, that was 16 yeah. years later. It, 16 years it took us to actually be able to do the process in a way that worked for both of us.
1: Yes. I think you put that
0: really nicely. <laughs> Thank you.
1: Um, I don't know. What else can we say? I, I don't think... We should talk about the other chapter, except to say that it exists.
0: The other chapter exists. Um, No, I will mention it uh, because this is, in fact, the opening chapter of the book. And it is the anatomy and physiology chapter written for academics.
1: So I just breathed out after finishing my PhD, you know, and guess what? An email comes through from uh, Professor Welch saying, well, um, I need someone to write. No, no, no. What
0: he actually said was... That basically that chapter in your PhD—it was two chapters, wasn't it? Yeah, no, it
1: was chapter two. Chapter
0: two, yeah, was so good that he wanted you just to morph it slightly to, to actually work for the yeah, book. That's yeah. actually what there so was a little
1: moment keep of pride. doing
0: yourself down.
1: Yes, um, and, it's extremely
0: uh, good, and if you can get hold of that, it is one of the best chapters I've read.
1: Structure and function of yeah, singing was. Structure and voice. function
0: I of singing was. It's
1: called. Oh, can we just finish off with? Reading the section headings for the Oxford Handbook of Singing, because it is is a fabulous resource. And, okay, so kudos to Professor Welch, David Howard and John Nix for this labour of love, because it takes a long time. Yeah. So uh, you've got the first section is the anatomy and physiology of singing. And
0: bear in mind, in each of these sections, there are at least four different uh, chapters uh, by f- at least eight different contributors. Yes.
1: And my structure and function of singing voice was the first one. So I was the first chapter in the book, which yep. is. I think you're the.
0: Little moment the, of pride. You're one of the few people to have written a chapter by yourself. Yeah,
1: there are a few of us there, I can see. And then uh, the next one is the acoustics of singing. Yep. With lots of lovely contributions there. Um, the psychology of singing. And then the development of singing across the lifespan. Singing pedagogy, that was our second chapter, was in there. The collective choral voice, wider benefits of singing, singing for health, and singing and psychology, and then singing and technology.
0: And future perspectives. And future yeah. perspectives, yeah. yeah. It's such a great book, this. Yeah. Because I mean, every time proud. I open it,
1: I find something. Oh, that looks yes. so exciting. Yeah,
0: very proud to be part of that. Um, I just want to finish with why do we write books?
1: because
0: <laughs> i can tell you right now it ain't for it the money ain't
1: for the money oh lord no, i think
0: isn't. i think with one of my books i earned enough to have afternoon tea i don't know
1: who you had afternoon tea at the ritz with. now I, I was going
0: to say it was afternoon <laughs> tea at the ritz but then with another book i've earned enough to have afternoon tea at the local pub L- Seriously, you just don't make much money from yeah. books like this.
1: The reason why you write a book is because it has to be written. You have to share that you have a, you have a need to share some aspect of what it is you do, or some aspect of insight that you have, and you want to share it with the world. That's why you do
0: it. I think it's interesting, just because um, the first whatever whatever I said. Well, in fact, if you, if you count the Singing Express book and then the Singing Express song book, we had eight books in that series, mm. but we count them as four. Um, I think it was the first seven books were commissions. But even when you're offered a commission, you still have to go, do I really want to write this? Mm. Do, what is it that I want to say? What What do I have that will work really well that will be strong and powerful.
1: And here we're talking about non-fiction, remember? Yes. It's still a creative act. Still a creative act. You can't do it. Speaking personally, if it's not a creative act, I can't do it.
0: It's interesting because I have the same uh, thing with um, piano playing, which is if somebody asks me to accompany them in a recital... I will look at the music and the programming and go, do I actually connect with that? Do I want to play it? And if there are, usually in a a recital, there's loads of stuff that I want to do and there might be one piece that I'm going, oh, I really don't like this one. And I have to work really hard to find something that I want to share in that piece, Mm. something that I think is so special or so unusual or so something that I want to share it with the audience. And if I can do that, I can connect much deeper into the piece
1: so um I oh, and think- we did the
0: same thing with the webinars. every single one of the eighteen webinars had a reason for its for its existence. Yes. there was something that we wanted to get out there. We were sick of the bullshit and we wanted to get information, really clear, solid, practical, technical Mm. information out there.
1: Well, frankly, something exciting that you're doing in your lessons, and you're doing it on a regular basis, and you're thinking, I I think other people would like to know about this. Yes. Now, we need to segue quickly to the end. (laughs) Um, Having said that, it's difficult to earn money from writing books. It's one of the reasons why I was self-publishing now. Yes. And Jeremy's first uh, self-published book was How to Sing Legato. How to
0: Sing Legato. It was seven years on the pot. Mm. I finally got off the pot and um, and published it. Um, really pleased it went to number one on its first day. I love this book because it's the no bullshit. This is how legato works. This is what it is. Um, this is it. Here are the exercises. And it's gone rather it. well, hasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Can we finish in three minutes?
0: Uh, easily. Yes. Everybody,
1: I have a lovely, relaxing <laughs> Feldenkrais session yeah, coming up course. any minute now. Of
0: course you do. Um, so, yes. Uh, so we are being sponsored today by Canny Publishing, who, which is the publishing arm of Vocal Process. And uh, How to Sing Legato was the first book that Canny Publishing produced. We're now up to three. Mm. Um, so thank you, Canny Publishing. Mm. Uh, everything that we've mentioned, we will put links into the uh, description box. And I think we're done. I think we're
1: done. Yes.
0: Thank you very much for listening.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: This is A Voice, a podcast with Dr Gillian Kayes and Jeremy Fisher.